Welcome to Printing Money, the insider's perspective on finance and investment in the 3D printing industry. Here are your hosts, Alex Kingsbury and Danny Piper. Hello, my name is Alex Kingsbury, and guess what? Today we have a bonus episode of Printing Money. Um, I have to say we're really sort of uh, coming out of the ranks here um, because we don't normally do CEO interviews, but for this particular guest, we are going to make an exception. I am very pleased to say that we're going to be talking with Rick Fuller, the CEO and founder of Desktop Metal. Rick is an absolute legend in the industry. He has been a trendsetter for sure, particularly as it relates to the topic of this podcast, which is financial markets. I think you would struggle to find someone who has done more M&A deals in this industry uh, as a solo person or at least overseen more M&A deals in his time. Um, Rick has an amazing entrepreneurial background um, and has worked in and around engineering companies, technology companies for actually a really long time and also has a background in VC. Um, So Obviously, we have uh, the, the, the very recently terminated deal with Stratasys and Desktop Metal, which we will be touching upon in this episode. But I think what's going to be a really great thing to do is actually to get a little bit more of a vision to Desktop Metal and uh, you know where they came from and um, maybe some of the, the particulars of these arrangements with Stratasys and others. And then looking at, you know, what is Desktop Metal doing now? Um, so... You know, Rick, I've got to say one of the um, my favorite stories about Rick is uh, not so long ago at, at Rapid earlier this year, we um, were all invited to um, a lovely little drinks um, event and um, and it was a, you know, it was a huge event actually. Uh, it was really popular. Lots of people there. Everyone's having a good lot of networking social time um, and I go to get myself a, a drink from the bar and I look over and there's Rick Fulop with his laptop out uh, with a PowerPoint presentation up pitching Troy Jensen, who is a guest host on this podcast, uh, his latest idea. And that to me speaks volumes about Rick um, and the kind of entrepreneur he is. He is absolutely tenacious. He will not give up and he is around the clock committed to the the things that he is working on. So, um, of course, with me today is Danny, my co-host. Danny, uh, what have been your uh, experiences of Rick Fulop? Who is Rick Fulop to you? Yeah, no, I, look, thanks, Alex. And I think, you know, we, we want to dive into this, Rick. I, I appreciate you you're coming on. And, you know, I, you know, I think you're right when you say nobody's done more M&A deals in this space and it's probably been more of a trendsetter in the financing side of it. You know, I had the opportunity, Rick, to work with you uh, as it relates to Opticis as we were doing their Series A. And uh, you're great to work with. And, I, and one thing I will say is M&A is a full contact sport. It's a hard it's a hard, it's the, for, for people that haven't gone through these transactions, we tell most entrepreneurs, this is going to be the hardest transaction of your life. To, to have gone through it as many times as Rick has, I think is one impressive, but more impressive, you've got a very good relationship and I think rapport with most of the bankers in this space. And that's a hard thing to do coming out of deals unscathed. And so uh, I can say that for many of the bankers that we collaborate and, and for those that, um, that do, you've got a very good reputation. I think in part, it it might be that it stems from the fact that you are very entrepreneurial and a lot of the big corporates are a little bit more bureaucratic in their thinking and their executives. So, I mean, that's that's maybe my take of it. And that's why if we could start jumping in the questions, I, I think we're gonna get to the latest on the Stratasys deal, but I think diving in for a second, 
I'd like to hear where Rick was. Chapter one, you came out of the gates in 2015. And really by 2017, you hit the gas pedal hard on VC funding. Aside from carbon, you sort of led the way in terms of the amount of capital raised. This is, I'll call it chapter one, going up through the SPAC. And I think for everybody here, what was your thinking and thought process around that? You know, the speed, the amount of money that you raised um, and how you came at it and just getting a flavor for what your thought processes were, I think it would be helpful for this audience. Well, first, uh, Danny and Alex, a real pleasure to be here. So thank you so much for having me and uh, excited to share a story and um, go into all this, all this history. And uh, it's actually... Uh, what we just went through is, I think, uh, a once-in-a-lifetime uh, uh, food fight that <laughs> I think is deserves a, a movie one day. Uh, as we were going through it, all the different top characters were talking uh, about who was going to be played by who, uh, whether it was uh, uh, folks like like uh, UF Stern or UF Sci for yeah, the who have you picked, was- Rick? Yeah, I, I have no idea. What, I mean, if, <laughs> I, 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 uh, <laughs> Ryan Reynolds. I'm gonna, I'm, not, I'm gonna put it out there. <laughs> I'm not, I'm not that good looking, but, but I, <laughs> I, I think it definitely was a very entertaining last couple of months uh, with lots of plot, plot twists. But, well, I uh, mean, from a podcast host's perspective, I'd like to say thank you for the podcast fodder. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, I, I would say I came into DM with a background having been a, a material science entrepreneur. I, I worked on lithium iron phosphate and commercialized the first. Uh, lithium iron phosphate cells uh, in the market, which today are used in about half of electric vehicles. And and uh, coming out of that uh, as an investor, I started investing in, in the manufacturing space uh, at the beginning of the last decade. And we, we were put the Series A money behind companies like Proto Labs and put the money to start Mark Forge and a couple of other uh, companies in our space. Got to see what other folks were doing when they were just getting going. Uh, like uh, Joe and Phil at Carbon and, and uh, companies like that. And then uh, I had a thesis that uh, around 2015 that uh, somebody should do something in powder metallurgy. And uh, I had been an investor in a company called 1366 uh, that uh, my co-founder, Ellie Sachs, who's the inventor of Binderjet, had, had been involved in, knew him quite well from there for many years. And uh, one, one of the uh, things that I really enjoyed about the inkjet industry is that if you actually invested in keeping your product portfolio updated with the latest technology, Inkjet is a technology that doubles in throughput every roughly three years. The first binder jet machine had one nozzle and 300 hertz of, of uh, frequency. And today you can, we, we have machines with 100,000 nozzles on a, on a full page wide bar uh, that, that uh, in, in our, our highest throughput uh, system pulses at up to 100 kilohertz for those heads. So the heads uh, benefit from semiconductor manufacturing techniques, which means they can get higher nozzle density and higher firing frequency. So not, not everybody upgrades their systems constantly, but if you did, you you would be on a Moore's Law-like capability for this technology. And, and that's why it was already at the beginning of the last decade, a very high productivity process, but uh, today, it's uh, really uh, spectacular. I mean, on, on our SAN side, we, we just installed systems at BMW that that are uh, close to 350 liters an hour. These are like new versions of the Xerial uh, print platform that uh, 
now we have th these systems have 2.2 meter long beds by 1.2 meter by almost a meter in depth uh, and they print two boxes at the same time so you know this 30, is big auto manufacturing uh, technology volume. happening here right so exactly. I, I assume this is on your your sand printing side yeah we have parts on more cars than any other uh, I would say 3D printing company now. So almost every BMW, it's being this technology is being used to make uh, Tesla Giga casting a reality by enabling all the validation process that happens before you do die casting. And in the future, will be used to put uh, printed cores inside of die casting for Giga casting. So you could do all the uh, pillars in a vehicle or the, the you know the front crash sections and things like that. So it's uh, you know Toyota and uh, other OEMs like Volvo and Mercedes-Benz are are uh, looking at it. Toyota just recently announced something a week ago on this. So it's it's a scenario of, of uh, high growth. And so that that was kind of the the genesis when we were getting going. We wanted to do something in powder metallurgy or in that leverage that capability. And uh, we we didn't know how to make um, printers when we started the company. Started with myself, uh, John Meyerberg, who's a very, very good uh, uh, entrepreneur, co-founder, uh, and it, uh, he and I have worked together. Oh my God, since two thousand four. So yeah, you guys were on um, A one two three together. Is that That's right? right? Yeah. yeah. And John ran our motorsports business, and uh, you know he has. He's a fellow that's won Le Mans three times. He's uh, yeah, I was going to say, I've had a number of uh, RevHead conversations with Jonah. Um, and yeah, uh, yeah he's, a, he's a very passion, passionate he's a car very guy. Good, yeah, and if you look at, at uh, you know, he's a, a highly accomplished uh, highly accomplished inventor, you know, almost 250 patents uh, to his name now. It, well, you know, if you look at all the countries and the filings and this and that, but it's a very accomplished inventor. And... Uh, uh, and uh, entrepreneur and uh, two of us have worked on this for a long time and uh, teamed up to do this company with Ellie as well as uh, uh, John Hart uh, from MIT and uh, uh, Yet Ming Chang who's a ceramics uh, expert and uh, uh, also Chris Shu who ran the material science department at MIT and we got started in 2015 with uh, some seed money and the first product was uh, a bound metal deposition system. We didn't really know very well how to do uh, high throughput binder jet at the time, and we had to develop our own furnaces. And we, you know, we worked on it for two years and came up with what I thought was a fantastic first product, our studio system. And uh, it took us longer to ship it than we thought. So we were like a year and a half late after we launched it. We I, had a lot I, of, yeah, I remember that, that period that was a mess. of time. I mean, there we, we there a was of, a lot of, um, yeah, people sort of expectantly. What, what, 2017, <laughs> right? About yeah. that time? Yeah, it was it was tough. We eventually shipped them, and they shipped them in volume, and then we came up with Studio 2, which eliminated the need for the wash process, and uh, we're going to make that system much better today. We can do titanium and other materials. So, And then we launched our, our uh, production system in parallel, and... Uh, uh, we did the back of the envelope marketing uh, specs of what we thought could be done with single pass jetting, and and then we had to like make it work, and uh, it took a long time to get it to uh, where it is today. And uh, uh, but it's uh, as a MIM uh, process, it's the fastest system in the market today. And uh, that uh, I think the, the killer app for that system is consumer electronics printing, and we've got 
would say um, three of the top four manufacturers, consumer electronics, will are, are making very good progress with with that technology. And, uh, so, so this is the P50 system you're referring to. P50 or P1. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That's single pass genetic technology. So, yeah. so tell me, Rick. I want to know. Um, you know how to. I, I appreciate. You know, you had heavy involvement from some material scientists, and MIT obviously was involved. Um, the invent, original inventor. You know, Eli, as you mentioned. Um, of binder jetting, but I mean, you know, taking something from the lab into an actual product that works and is going to be sold, you know, to customers. What's what was that process like for you? Um, and you know, what what was your strategy? Uh, because you know, it would seem that you not having had an experience of of binders and jetting in the past, but having had very much an entrepreneurial background and also you know, experience in powder metallurgy as well, as I understand from your A123 days and um, and a number of other transactions that you've done. Did you just go out and hire the experts or did you, yeah, okay. <laughs> yeah, we, I mean, we had Ellie who invented the, the invented binder jetting, but then we had to like get best in the world inkjet people, best in the world uh, chemists to do new classes of binders. Really go bottoms up. Uh, first principles uh, on on how to make a better product, how to be able to uh, eliminate the need to dry on every layer and print at higher throughputs and uh, recode uh, with better uh, uniformity at a meter per second and all that yeah, stuff. Yeah, make a commercial system, right? Yeah, it, it was, and you know, powder handling. Powder handling, where you're moving a met, one and a half metric tons of powder a day, That that's a lot of powder. Mm-hmm. Uh, so... They don't exist. You have to design it and build them. And I mean, exist probably for other industries, but not not in the three D printing space. To print that that throughput was a lot of new technology development. Halfway through that, in 2019, uh, we started working on the shop system. Uh, and also, 2019 was an interesting year. We we were scaling. We had distri- Stratasys had uh, given us distribution, so we started with a seed investment from Stratasys. Uh, you did, was, yeah. Yeah, I was friends with Scott Crump and actually and John McElhaney, who's on the board of Stratasys. And, and Johnny is, is a great guy. Uh, we actually started our, our office, DM started in his office at Onshape. So I had been the original investor in Onshape. Johnny eventually sold that to PTC. And I was, and then Stratasys leveraged, John used to run Sol, uh, SolidWorks, was the CEO of SolidWorks. So he... He had developed this channel that the 3D printing industry had levered to sell 3D printers. It, it didn't exist before. So um, uh, that, that's how Stratus has scaled. And, and, have, and I met uh, Scott back, back when we were doing the, the Series A for Protolabs, and he was trying to buy the company. So we'd known each other for a long time. And then I, when I funded Mark Forge for the Series A, he... He and I uh, stayed very friendly. I tried to convince him to buy Mark Forge in 2016, and uh, when when they they only had the Mark One, and the Mark One is was a tough printer. I mean, the Mark Two was worked great, but the Mark One was tough. Uh, and uh, I remember at that time um, I was nervous about it. Uh, you know, where they're going to make it and everything. And I tried to convince Scott to buy it. They should have bought it. Actually, it would have been a a great, I think Mark Forge took a lot of growth over the follow-on years to, from Stratasys in terms of I mean, new workers. There's still time for, yeah, there's nothing. for there's them nothing. to buy Mark Forge. Anything can happen. Trust me. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, Rick, one more question from me about those early days, and then I'm going to kick it over to Danny. 
you were a, a general partner of Northridge, Northbridge uh, VC. Yes. Um, yes. And you were very much in the VC space. Um, but you're, you know, you departed from the VC space to co-found Desktop Metal. Um, you know, in some ways, you would have had a pretty nice life um, continue, continuing to be a venture capitalist um, and not having to do this, you know, uh, hard, hard yards of the founder life. Um, yes. Why? Uh, <laughs> okay. I mean, I think my wife asked me the same question. I think that the problem with, with um, the nice thing about venture capital is that you, you, you have a lot of freedom in your schedule and you, you only need to do two deals a year in a large fund like that. And uh, so you, you, but you, you get busy as busy as you want to be. And, and coming out of what in my previous business was a, a company that had 1600 people that had started and it was global and I was extremely busy. Uh, you get into venture where there's like, I mean, it's, you're as busy as you want to be. Like you set up meetings, you're busy. You don't set up meetings, you're not busy. And I, I was like having breakfast. Sounds coffee, like Danny's life. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I don't know. But my, my life was breakfast, coffee, 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 lunch, coffee, 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 dinner. And every time was like meeting another person and hearing a pitch and realized that that I really like building and creating and developing new technology. And uh, you do it for five years. You made a lot of money and all this stuff. And it is not as fun as having an idea and taking it all the way through into a product and then making a customer successful, which is the real satisfaction to like. I, I think it's a common misnomer that VCs and I'll see with private equity people too, thinking that they can go in and be good operators of businesses because they're really different skill sets and very different lifestyles. And I, I think you know, clearly your passion is to grow and build companies more so than that uh, the, the different lifestyle they get as a VC. When you hit, you you kind of hit the you know I said the gas pedal earlier is around 2017 when you've got that studio system and that's when you did the first big raise. And I think it sort of set a precedent. There's a couple companies that sit in this category. You're not alone. Carbon was there shortly behind it. I think, you know, Form Labs, not not quite at the same pace that you did. And um, what was the thinking in raising that much capital so quickly and, you know, and just giving a a flavor for everybody here? Because I I see a lot of entrepreneurs that have this idea that I'm just going to go raise a lot of money. And especially in today's market where that window closed a long time ago. You know, I feel like I spent a lot of time educating them to say, figure out what that plan is going to be and then go build around it. You had a little different time frame and then sort of like the, the the venture capital, you know, window. And it was pretty open for raising big amount of money. And I think your background lends itself to it. So what was the thought process at that time? Because that, that seemed to be the big it's, launching point. It's never easy to raise capital and you have to know how to do it. it it's a skill set that you build over time. It doesn't always, it's, there's market, like exactly what you're saying, there's times in the market where you can do it or not. But for us, I mean, we we had a, a couple challenges. We Going back to the Stratasys thing, they had given us some seed money. We were going, part of what they gave us was the channel, access to their channel. And so we had like pre-sold all this equipment through that channel. They're, very, they're like a machine. And uh, we had like 30 something million dollars worth of orders for this machine that we had announced. And now we had to make it in volume and we had to make it reliable and cost effectively and all this. And it was like a mess. We, we had to like, we felt like we had to like uh, build our war chest back then in 2017 and develop a, a, a bigger uh, capability. And then we, we uh, for better or worse, uh, started working on the, on the P50 system at that time. 
and that is probably the most complex system I've ever worked with in terms of uh, technology development. It wasn't a moonshot, uh, but it was. Uh, there was a lot of new technology. Print heads that pulse at 100 kilohertz. You've got motion systems that are moving at a meter per second, depositing powder with less than 1% variability on your bed and bidirectionally. So you have to have like all the stuff adjusted perfect and uh, we, I think what you were, of... yeah, I think what you're speaking to, Rick, is, um, and I like to say, binder jetting is hard. I've, you know, yeah. I've had experience across a number of different AM modalities. I think binder jetting is actually the hardest of any of the modalities that I have worked across, and um, and and really, this is what you're explaining, you know, here very well, uh, because there it is, it is such a complex system, and there are so many possibilities for it to you know to fall over and then you know throw in the fact that you've actually only got a green part at the end of that process um you also then need to go and work out your you know your sintering recipes as well and they can be geometry dependent and certainly material dependent and binder dependent um there are so many variables and so uh yeah it, it's a massive achievement to develop a, a system from the ground up it's basically a big moat and barriers to entry. And today we have dozens of materials qualified, ceramics and metals, commercial production. We have 1,200 systems in the field. It's used in, but it was hard when we were starting it. And so we needed the capital to build that. And we spent $100 million developing P50. You cannot recreate it without spending. And you have a lot of people that said, oh, I'm going to do the same thing. And it's a bit, I don't know if it's hubris or not, but like, uh, I mean, GE hasn't shipped their system yet. They've got a couple of beta players. They will eventually. They're a good company. Uh, and it took other people a long time to ship their systems. Today, we have a lot of, you know, we developed the shop system. We have number one selling machine in that segment. Uh, and we've got um, a number of other products. Uh, we're very lucky that we were able to combine with X1 after mm-hmm. a lot of back and forth <laughs> between our companies. That's a very, very good. It's, it's their so products. That- are fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. That's so that jumps ahead for a second. Cause I mean, I think that the, the reality is right. I mean, Alex, you just sort of backstopped it. You know, material science is hard. Building equipment to go with that material science is hard. And this is not the domain of traditional VC deals. So you're swimming in sort of the hardest of the hard pool of some of these transactions that VCs who have been punch drunk on enterprise software look at this and go, oh my God, what are you doing here? So you had to convince sort of a, a venture capital pool to do something that was, especially in the, you know, you're in the Boston environment in that ecosystem, which is a little more friendly sometimes to the hardware side of the world than say uh, Silicon Valley. But you kind of come up to sort of 2020, the SPAC window starts to open. You didn't invent SPACs, no, nobody's saying you did, but you were the first to take advantage of it really, I think in a meaningful way here on the 3D printing side of the world. Clearly, so, that gives you certain advantages. Love to hear your kind of thinking through here. Yeah, I mean, I, I think we we had some fantastic investors early on. And you go to investors that can really help. So, like, if you think of um, the, the people that were the first three VCs that invested in us, uh, Bill Alsuberry went to MIT and trained under, under Mario Molina, who's a Nobel Prize winner in chemistry. So, like, as technical as it gets, uh, uh, Dana Grayson from Construct. Uh, she was at NEA at the time. Fantastic, and super technical, as well. Uh, Wayne uh, Wen Shea, who from Kleiner Perkins, uh, did his PhD at Caltech. Also extremely technical. So we, you go to people who will understand what you're doing. They 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 are out there. Uh, you know, you 
you're not, I mean, the right person for a type of business we're starting was not some liberal arts major who, it, it was really like. Uh, you had you had a very informed investor base. Yeah, yeah. They knew what we were doing and they thought it wasn't crazy. So I, I was back to this PAC thing. Like, look, what ended up happening to us was, was crazy. Like we lost access to the channel uh, because I think Stratus felt very threatened when we raised all this venture capital. And like, oh, we can't afford you anymore. Like they had some ideas that one day we would combine and now we were, we'd raised money at a billion dollars. And ah, it became unachievable. So, yeah. so they, they became uh, threatened by it. And then, in, then we went into this uh, uh, mode in 2020 on a pandemic, which caught everybody by surprise. And so we, we took what we were doing with P50. We said, okay, we're going to slow down the P50 work and spend more time on shop because you can send... You can sell a studio and a shop system uh, without with much easier installation. You don't need a special facility. We'll at least keep revenue going uh, while that's happening, and then refocus the team. And then I remember in in March of uh, of 2020, we had to let a lot of people go. We went at the time we were like a 200 person company, and we we went down to 100 and something, which was very painful. A lot of good people, friends that you work with. It's something you hope you never have to do to let. Uh, great, great colleagues uh, go just because you have to make your cash last through a pandemic, right? So you just didn't know what was going to happen. And and then um, a few weeks later, I had a, a, a friend, a fellow named uh, Rob Johnson, who I used to work with before, and he had teamed up with uh, Dave Cody, who was the CEO of Honeywell on a company called Vertiv, and they took it public via SPAC. This pack promoter was was uh, the Honeywell guy, and uh, they they had a very successful offering. They raised a billion dollars and uh, took this company Vertif public. And uh, I was talking to Rob. I was like, "Yeah, this thing can be done. You do this, and there's this thing called a pipe, and this pack, and whenever you get you learn about it." And uh, uh, the next day, I called a couple of folks that I knew that were in the space, and then told my board we're going to try something crazy. Uh, this thing just happened to somebody that I know and respect. And like, why don't we try to see if we could do something like this? And then we could use it to consolidate the industry in the segments that are mass production related, which is really our vision. In June, uh, we selected a banker, Credit Suisse, a very, very good banker named John Tregott. And uh, by... August, we had uh, raised a pipe and uh, the whole had everything ready to be announced. I think it was August 24th. And then we were trading in December. And if you look at our original presentation, which, uh, what, you know, we had lots of projections and things. Not everything that we said happened the way that, you know, you're projecting the future. So not everything ends up happening that way exactly like you think. But one thing that we did say we would do is that we would look at, at a bunch of m and opportunities when we had a point of view on what made sense from an M&A point of view. It selected like there's, you know, we thought at that time the market was 12 billion for additive. And then there was this group of companies that were going to grow faster than the market. We thought some group of companies that were not interesting. And, and uh, we started discussions with a lot of these folks before we were went public. And uh, cause it takes time. It's really about having a good, you want to keep all the all the key people and all of this. Oh my God, we had a deal and a handshake with Kent Rockwell and uh, and uh, John Hartner was a wonderful guy. John, John is a really good person, the, the former CEO of X One, to do something kind of in and around the range of like 
nine bucks a share for X1 before before they went public. And then as soon as like our presentation went out, all these people, all these valuations started going up and like their nine bucks became 12 and then 14. And then we had to like sort of let put that on ice for a little bit with X1 because it got so crazy that their their price per share went up to like 55 bucks. Well, it's, it's partly your undoing, right? I mean, I think I think it starts. But I, let me let me just say this. Yeah. I mean, I think during that time, my phone started ringing off the hook because I think one thing you did well, and and I I, I think nobody has replicated it the way you did was come up with this consolidation strategy, and not really consolidation, but bringing in key elements that could be enabled by your team as a platform. And in the calls that you would do, just, you know, the number of CEOs that called and said, hey, get ready. I just got a call from Rick. I'm going to need help. Right. I, I think that happened quite a few times. So going through this sort of SPAC process, open the door, it becomes December, you start trading and it gives you sort of another tool in the tool chest and the ability to use uh, stock as a consideration. So you come out of the gate, obviously, you know, everybody's sort of heard most of the deals that you did in this whole stratasys realm of discussions, it comes out that you had actually put a proposal together to acquire stratasys in February of 2021. <laughs> and, and, no, and so I, not to throw you, like M&A is a tough business, but pretty funny that here we are and we kind of come back and, and this is maybe a good segue as we start to transition into sort of uh, stratasys, but Obviously, you had a playbook that you wanted to do with the ability to go execute on deals. And and we all think about the smaller deals that have been done, culminating and ending really with X1. But it's sort of interesting to hear that piece. And so here we are, Stratasys, February 2021, and you decided to swing for the fences. So maybe walk us through that and then you know, yeah, the we, turnabout here. They, they, they've, the fun part here is like we knew what their distribution could do. We sold thirty something million dollars without lifting a finger with them on the what was it the twenty nineteen and then in twenty twenty the you know when the, we we lost the distribution deal from that with them we went down to sixteen with the same products and then uh, we felt like they could really be an accelerant on what what they didn't have is they didn't have a product portfolio at, at the time that had the right uh, scale and, and I really didn't know Yoav uh, Zaif at that time he's a wonderful person and a excellent manager and uh, has done very good things for Stratus. So we got to know each other at that time. I, I tried to do something that would have, re, re, you know, we were trading at 30 times sales, which is not normal. doesn't happen every day of the week. And uh, yeah, we had to put a lot of valuations together. We put all the companies together and then we had to put the SPAC companies and had to apply. It, it was a crazy time for, for whatever reason. And, and we're sort of, Kind of working our way through that, but we were we were uh, we built our our models and built pro- made a proposal to them and uh, they considered it. At the time, I didn't know that it's fun to look backwards and see that they had this 3D systems uh, offer that was had also come like a week before, which we didn't know. So they had were on this whole mode and starting to defend themselves. But uh, Jeff has started his his uh, courting of Stratasys at that time. Anyway, we stayed very friendly, got to know each other much better. And uh, I was focused on the things that were controllable for me primarily uh, outside of that Stratasys initial offer, which was uh, I had a strategy to, number one, uh, the, go into, poly- into photopolymers uh, with DLP. And we went after Envision Tech, which had a lot of the core IP 
that everyone was violating on area-wide photopolymers. And one of the challenges of produ producing products with photopolymers is that the mechanical properties are not as good as thermoplastics. And so at the same time, we went after a company called Adaptive 3D, which has a new way to polymerize photopolymers called photopips, where you, you have two parts that then phase separate and only they phase separate with light. And then in that pixel or voxel that you, you'll have uh, then the, the polymerization reaction when they're phase separated. When they're miscible, they're, they're non-reactive. And that gives you much better mechanical properties and durability. And it was early technology that, that uh, at the time was not super mature, but we continue to invest in it. And we have our, our free phone product that has best in class properties that has come out of that transaction. And um, yeah, and that was just launched uh, November last year. Is that that's, right? That's right. Yeah. yeah. So we've continued to innovate as we put a portfolio together. And, uh, you know, out of this combination between Envision Tech and, and Adaptive, we've come up with our Flexera line of materials that have the world's best properties for dental restorative market. So not the orthodontics, which was the legacy market in, in additive, but actual end-use parts that are in your mouth and last a decade there. And so... Uh, our Flexera Ultra Plus has three times the performance of, of the dense blind materials in terms of fracture toughness, which was what uh, uh, one of the key uh, figures of merit uh, has half of the moisture absorption of, of uh, the next dent materials. It has uh, twice the wear resistant of, of uh, previous technology. So it's a really, really good material and has beautiful aesthetics. And so uh, that we built a great business there on the dental side today. It's, uh, last year was like 80 million combined for, for full dental. So. Yeah. So, but on the thermoplastics, we are also considering Stratasys. On the thermoplastics, we, we were looking at it, not, not for the FDM side, but, but because we could do with adaptive, you can, uh, you can do photopolymers that are very tough. And so that have basically thermoplastic like properties. So you, now have the ability to put that type of technology on a polyjet system and and really uh, enhance the market opportunity for that system as well as go to market that they have and um, anyway we we've been working also for seven years on another technology uh, called mhd if you look at our patents there's a, a high temperature inkjet project here that's continued and that was also very exciting with stratasys guys so that that's still an r d but it's uh a project that uh, we've had going for a long time. The, the Navy has been uh, helping us support that that program, and hopefully, in a year or two, we'll have a product. Probably two years. We'll yeah, there's, there's certainly, you know, I mean, through all of these um, merger talks and your joint, you know, uh, press conference and um, uh, you know a number of the other press releases, you know, certainly what has come through very strongly is that you've had an active collaboration with Stratasys and um, you know, very good relationship with them over a number of years um yeah. and uh yeah and and m maybe just going back to that period um you know february 2021 uh when you had put in the offer um in a stock for stock transaction it, it would seem that there are other other sharks circling at the same time and and as you mentioned um most of this information has only come to light through um, you know, by virtue of the fact that you've had these these merger talks, and um, Stratasys has needed to to completely divulge, you know, uh, a whole lot of the information that supports this merger, um, at the history of it and the background. But it also means uh, and has showed that um, you know both three D systems and Nano Dimension um, have also been pretty actively involved. But 
yeah. what was kind of interesting to me, and I figure it's just sort of noteworthy and I, it's worth mentioning, um, is that, uh, you know, while publicly we knew um, what Nano Dimension was doing uh, with, with Stratasys, we weren't actually aware that um, Nano Dimension had put an offer to you as well. Um, around a potential business combination. And not only was it just one offer uh, as a once off, it was, I think it was a, th- a total of three offers um, yes. that yeah. was put to you <laughs> in, uh, in 2022, early 23. Um, Contrary to public belief, I actually, uh, I mean, I get along with, I try to get along with everyone. I'm a, I'm a pilot and, and uh, the Nano Dimension guys are pilots. So it's a they're fun discussions whenever we're talking. And, you, uh, are you flying the plane in the same way, <laughs> at the yeah, same I'm direction? They're kind of scary, but uh, I'm a, just a regular uh, pilot. But but he, yeah, they, they were fighter jet aggressive. pilots. That's right. They were pretty aggressive and uh, very strategic. And uh, I was afraid that they were going to come after us uh, publicly because we were like a natural target after uh, strategy that didn't work out. So one of the things that I I did is I, I my CFO and I I, I introduced myself to Joab and said, hey, let's just get to know each other. And I, I got on a flight, uh, landed in Tel Aviv at 10 in the morning, and then uh, went to went to meet with him, uh, but on a condition that we would put uh, something called a standstill between our companies. So he couldn't buy shares in our company publicly in a hostile way, the way they did it with Stratasys. He would have to, because we had a smaller market cap, and so he could just come after us uh, more aggressively. Uh, that was last uh, last year, and late last year. So by having a standstill, I I felt I felt a little more protected. Uh, I didn't have to put a pill, but I, I just felt more protected that he wasn't going to, without you know interacting with us, go and uh, and uh, start acquiring a position in our in our company because he did it to Stratus. He'd already set a precedent for doing it, so it makes he sense. He was a hostile player. Yeah, from that point of view. And um, I did a lot of those one-day trips. You land in Tel Aviv at 10 in the morning and you leave in the midnight flight and you're back the next day. I was going to say, yeah, did you do this trip Rick Forbes style? Straight yeah, off the plane, of straight into the meeting. Literally, that, there were a lot of those. Uh, it was back and forth. And um, I, I think I, I, went, I can't tell you how many times I went, I went there in Q4 last year. Yeah. A lot like that. I think the craziest thing, the craziest thing about that, that whole uh, setup was uh, how, I mean, I never expected Jeff. I, I had no idea that Jeff had put an offer on Stratasys three days before we closed our deal with them uh, in May this year, right? For me, that mm-hmm. was a complete surprise to learn that later. And I think they they were doing their thing. But, but I think that this came back to... Unfortunately, when that got all disclosed, then then uh, that that's what upset like the ISS and Glass Lewis's of the world. That, I, I, that, a, yeah, I, I mean, I guess this yeah. is my take. I I, I um, different people may have different opinions, but yeah. And so, look, I mean, I guess we're sort of um, you know rolling into the um, the termination of the merger deal um, with Stratasys. So, which you know was just uh, Stratasys uh, shareholder vote just uh, very recently, twenty eighth of September. Um, there was um, a majority of um, shareholders that voted against the deal, seventy eight point six percent. Of which, of course, we should remember that Nano Dimension is um, the, the the largest majority shareholder. 
um, in Stratasys and was was very public about the fact that they were going to be voting against. Um, and and so, you know, I think when you have a, um, a, a shareholder to the extent of, I mean, I believe it's, uh, it's about 16 or 18 percent that they have now. Um, it's it's in that realm anyway. The activists, because there are several activist firms that that got in there. Yeah, that's right. Um, and so so there was definitely a lot of def- there was definitely a lot of agendas when it came to this um, merger discussion between yourself and Stratasys. Um, in that it wasn't a straightforward um, transaction, and it, and it perhaps you know was not as straightforward as as even you th- were thinking that it would be going into it. Um, and it's uh, because of this disclosed information, and also uh, you know Nano Dimension being very very public. Um, you know, I think three D systems less so, but towards yeah. the end was definitely sort of mudslinging uh, quite a bit. I think it's fair to say. Uh, then uh, the um, the deal has not gone through, and um, and I think the it raises the question, and maybe maybe before we get into you know what's next for desktop metal and what what does your future look like. Um, I want to know, did, do you think that Stratasys shareholders made the right decision? Definitely, I think they did not. But uh, And I know that question's a setup, obviously. Past, but... But, uh, look, look, we did this deal for us, for, for DM. Like we were, Stratasys has always traded at a discount to DM. They have a lower multiple. Part of that is because of a historical reason that preceded the current management team. They, they kind of went through the desert for seven years and three years without a CEO. And now the new management team is is quite good, but they they went through a, a tough period of time. And I think that that um, that investor base was it was it was a very much a value investor base, whereas we had a growth investor base uh, in our in our effort. Now I never expected us to be trading at a at the current price per share that we are today. However, n- neither did Stratus expect to be at twelve bucks or thirteen or whatever. What what's happened in the last 24 months, if you look at, at the exchange ratio between the two companies, it has traded between a band up and down, more or less together. Sometimes it's favorable a little bit to Stratasys, sometimes it's favorable to us. And the fact that we've been talking for several years, you can kind of track that exchange ratio. Sometimes we're a little bit more, sometimes we're a little bit less. But for DM, the reason I, I really went hard for the deal in, in the uh, fall of last year is because it's harder to run a public company and get institutional investors like Fidelity and Wellington and T. Rowe and folks like this in a company when you don't fit the mold of having to have a certain amount of market cap in not being a, what's called a penny stock. And that doesn't mean that you can't get out of the doghouse where we are today, but it takes quite a bit. It can take some time. And, uh, you know, I have a, I have a board member, uh, Jimmy Eisenstein, that went through this. He, he did a company called American Tower. And in 2001, he was trading at 60 cents and he traded, you know, for not a lot for a long time. And then today it's a company that's worth $70 billion. And then uh, another fellow here in Boston, uh, McKim from uh, Clean Harbors, same thing. In the uh, 90s, uh, he went all the way down to like uh, sub $1, then stayed for a buck for a while. And then today it's a $10 billion company. So, you know, we're, we are committed to continuing to Im- improve and and grow the space. And I believe that the mass production side of additive is just beginning its S-curve. I think it's going to be a massive market. And, uh, you know, I, I do believe when people say additive will be a $100 billion business by the end of the decade, most of it will be mass production. And I think that 
that uh, that that is going to happen, and, and we're going to have a major role in it because Bindergen and DLP are mass production technologies. Are the and so I, I th- and we're a leader in both of those. So the combination with Stratus is at, at the end of last year was I went hard at it because it would make us investment grade right away, and we were getting forty one percent of the company and half of the board, and we could continue to contribute to the products and innovation. And we saw eye to eye with the management team. So I thought it was going to be great. And I thought that their investor base would understand what we brought to the table, which is a much improved and modernized product from the point of view of mass production. And uh, they could totally double, triple the size of that company uh, over a shorter period of time than if they just keep doing what they're doing. But they had a more of a value investor base. I got to meet most of their investors as we pitched everybody. And uh, uh, they... Uh, they're good people, but they, they are not uh, technology investors or growth-based investors. And so they and that happened because they went through a long period of time. They may have had some of those early on, but they lost them over the years. And then they got stuck with these activist folks in the middle. But it is a very good company with a great go-to-market. The management team is excellent. They have the most reliable products on FDM. Uh, Apologet technology, they're a leader in. So it, it was a shame, but we're friendly. So we're going to, yeah. you know, we're going to stay independent and build a great company on DM. And I think we, we can be quite large over time and we have better growth prospects than uh, some of the other players in our industry. So Rick, I, as we, as we look through, I know looking at Q4 and looking at the kind of Q3 numbers you just published, one of the things, and I'm guilty of this too, it's easy to look at the gap financials, but looking through the margin improvements, because when you, you just look at the gap numbers, you don't see it, but I think it's, it becomes evident. The non-cash expenses with amortization of IP, that that seems logical, no problem. It, it, the other big adjustment that I start to see, because you know, your reporting is non-GAAP, 31% gross margins. And when you look at the GAAP, it's 11%. And it's a big, it's a big jump. And so, like I said, I think the biggest piece is the is amortization, which is non-cash. That's that's great. That the next piece that's really big in this one is some of the work you're doing internally to restructure or maybe sort of integrate the company. I don't know which which term's better to use because I don't you know it's probably a little bit of both. What's happening internally that you can share right now that's helping drive some of the synergies and changes? Oh my goodness. Yeah I mean we bought 12 companies in a period of a year. 12 public MA transactions in one year. That's a lot in uh, as a public company. And we set up a strategy to go after the rent in the different segments. So in the dental space, we've got this partnership with Align uh, that allows them to enter the restorative space and where we've got basically a digital production capability that goes together with our systems and with their iTero scanners. Uh, and that, that's a business that's going very nicely. We got out of many things that we didn't think were strategic or going to grow. Like we got out of the jewelry stuff. We got out of the hearing aid uh, products. And we set up about a year ago, maybe it took too long to, to start this effort, but I, I wanted to make sure I didn't break the things that I acquired. But we started a process of uh, eliminating $100 million of costs from uh, the business. You know, I think if you look at Q, Q1 of 2022, we had OPEX at $52 million, and Q2 of 2023, it had gone down to 34.7. And you'll see in this uh, quarter that is, OPEX should be continue to make improvements and in q4 uh we're entering now q4 finally with uh a position where i am confident that we're really good opportunity to be adjusted to be that profitable for the first time i mean it's fair to say rick uh 
you know, over the last two years, you've set about, um, or, you know, really set a course, uh, done all of these um, transactions, these acquisitions. Um, but from that point onwards, really, that, that stopped, from a point onwards, that stopped. And then you set about doing a um, massive cost savings. Um, yeah. yeah, exactly. And, and integration, integration of those acquired companies and a huge cost savings regime. And obviously we had macro conditions changing at that time as well. So those became, you know, even more important and urgent. Um, so, you know, in addition to courting deals from uh, uh, desktop metal, trying to work something out with Stratasys, jumping on planes to Israel all the time, you know, you also were going about doing this, you know, massive integration um, of a number of different 3D printing companies into the one combined, you know, desktop metal company, but also realizing those cost savings and realizing them fairly urgently. Yeah. Is that something you want to talk to some of those, the, the cost saving measures that you've been able to implement and maybe some of the bigger ones that have been really significant for desktop? I know you've done a, a yeah, pretty no, major I mean, I, I, it was, integration. It, there aren't a lot of profitable companies in AM because uh, nobody's at scale. There's no billion dollar company in AM yet. Scale is very important. And when you look at uh, the means of production for a lot of these businesses, everybody had their, we had to get everything in a single location for all the major products. We had to consolidate the go-to-market. We had to uh, integrate all the ERP systems into a single, to get a GNA number that makes sense. Uh, we had to deploy Oracle, which is quite complex when you think of 12 Oracle implementations, uh, synchronize all the lead gen and go to market. While we're, while we're doing all this cost cutting, we, we broke things like we broke our, our lead gen system completely and, and, uh, we, we had to rebuild it. And so like, that's what you saw in our Q1 and we were kind of like, you know, not, didn't, didn't do as well in Q1, but then we kind of came back on Q2 as we fixed some of those things. So it's, it's, it was bumpy, and I think it'll continue to be bumpy. I mean, I think I tell you this, all this distraction from uh, the Stratasys discussion, 3D systems discussions, the mudslinging that we were getting from 3D systems and Nano, I don't know, they called us everything that you can imagine. They uh, weren't very kind, Rick. I know, I know. And then, like, making And, st- and I, will, I will say, sorry to interrupt, but, um, you know, in, in your defense, um, you actually – kept a very mild, I would say, I would describe it as a mild manner uh, with regards to press releases and um, communications, um, you know, engagement or interaction with the press, which was pretty limited, which, you know, I think is the the correct thing to do in in such a time. Um, And, um, you know, obviously it's only now that this this chapter is closed that, you know, you're able to speak more freely. Um, but, But you certainly, you know, I would characterize it as, you know, desktop metal held their tongue. Um, yeah, it was hard. You know, remained very focused on the Stratasys yeah. manager, remained very positive, and um, and really didn't bite back at all. Yeah, and and I think look, we're today we are grateful that we've been able to get. We're the second largest producer of, of metal uh, printers using powder in the market. We sold 128 million dollars worth of product in the in the non healthcare side of our business last year, and second only to EOS. And so we got there like from nothing two years earlier, but now when people say, oh, it's just the X1 products doing this, or it's the other, that's the reality is our company is fully integrated. We are keeping the brands because they have, they have equity. So, but, but our binders are in the X series products, the X series, some of the X, the technology that the other folks had are now in some of our other systems. So, and it's the same engineering team has been fully integrated into a matrix and, uh, 
you have people from X1 that are now working on uh, things at the end, people at the end that are working on Envision Tech things, people at Envision Tech that are working on adaptive things, people at adaptive that are helping us uh, on X1 areas. And so it's it's fully integrated. I, I would say we tried to hold our tongue. The, I, don't, I don't think this is over, right? I mean, and, I, and I'm just going to say it this way. I, Nanar Dimension still hasn't figured out what's, what they're going to be when they grow oh, up. They still trade. Trust me. They are. Right? They are oh, I mean, your stream is very strategic. Uh, that's why it's not over. I'm curious at what you think he's going to do. And Jeff Graves still has a problem on his hands now that I don't think he's going to make headways with Stratasys, but I'm curious if you think differently. And I think that we talked about this with the Cubicure acquisition. That got a little caustic because now you can see you know, uh, from Stratasys is throwing that back onto 3D systems about the visibility of their earnings. So I don't think we're out of the woods on some of these discussions. And since they've been going on for a long time, but you know, it's, it's sort of, you know, unfortunate because there's still a lot to do in this industry. As you said, nobody's hit scale. I'm, I'm not a big fan of the 3D system Stratasys uh, dynamic because I just feel like there's too much going on there and one major player um, it isn't the right dynamic for this industry right now. That, that's me personally talking. I'd love to get your feedback on sort of I, how- I agree that one major player is not good. Uh, I think that um, these are all good companies. Uh, I think uh, 3D Systems has a lot of good people in the company. They're very good at stratigraphy. They're very good at applications engineering. They may need to refresh some parts of the portfolio, but but uh, uh, I wouldn't count them out. And you know, I, I'm actually I think that uh, AME as a as a market is a is something that's going to happen in our lifetime. We have printed electronic boards, and you know, uh, there, there's you know, technology out there that can make the substrates much, much higher performance and uh, uh, with better dielectrics. And so eventually that'll get to those systems. And as they merge them with a pick and place technology, their, their strategy is not crazy, to be honest. I mean, I actually, I, I spent time with them. So I, you know, they bought a pick and place company and then they're integrating with their printer that, you know, eventually it'll ship one day. They had enough cash to, so maybe in two years, we'll have like the Dragonfly 7, which has pick and place and a better dielectric and it and uh, all the things that, that were a problem and the ability to do integrated cooling into those devices and you know so the, i mean rick you have said that desktop metal is not for sale you know this mergers discussion is correct yeah um it, it, you know it's is now chapter is closed and going forward um you know desktop is not for sale and you are committed uh to this this path to profitability uh, now, but I mean, can I be so controversial as to say nanodimension desktop metal combination sounds like it, it wouldn't make I would say the worst never sense. say never to any of these combinations because we are fiduciary. So the one yeah. thing that uh, I I'm a fiduciary. If somebody calls me and proposes something, I will talk to them and we evaluate it, and we have to do it as a you know you have a duty of candor and loyalty to your shareholders, and you have to understand. What it, what the pros and cons are of these versus take it as a personal thing, uh, and so for me, I'm I'm always open to listen to new ideas, and and I, particularly, I think that there are uh, all these companies have different things that are good and bad about them, and and uh, whether they make sense. Uh, I, I know I'm good at some things and not good at other things, and uh, uh, I can work with some people, and maybe sometimes it's hard to not sometimes it's hard to work with other people so i you know i look at we're open-minded yeah but okay. uh, i i would say 
I'm focused on VM and building our our building walls around the company now and strengthening them and uh, and uh, building our mode and making our customers successful. We haven't we've already just went through enough drama. So well, last question from me, and, and, and it's going to be selfish for the other M&A and the bankers of the world. I think we're all pulling for you to kind of get through this EBITDA profitability shake to where you can sort of have a more comfortable balance sheet so that uh, maybe there's a chance that uh, there are some tuck-in acquisitions in the future for uh, for DM. And I, I don't know. I, yeah, we, we always we look at a lot of stuff, uh, but but right now I'm, I'm definitely focused on on uh, making sure that our company gets through, starts to uh, cash flow uh, on the money that we have. And then as one of the things that's kind of exciting is when we go into this recessionary-like periods in additive, the market slows down, and it, and, uh, but the number of deals that you look at in your funnel doesn't slow down. The funnel actually gets bigger. Yeah. It's and we lower saw that. In, lower in value. That's right. We, we saw that in 2001, 2008, and 2020. And the flip side, coming out of these types of periods, that funnel that was now very large with lots of deals that were waiting for approval start to get approved. And you have this, this uh, reverse cycle that actually pushes on growth. When you average both of those, you, this industry compounds at 20%. But it compounds a little faster when you're outside of that uh, cycle like the one we're in right now with, with higher interest rates and and uh, where people are really uh, questioning every every dollar as a CFO, you you are very uh, sensitive to how you spend the money. So I would say I'm very bullish in this industry in the long run, and I think that uh, uh, we're just at the beginning of our S curve for for growth in in additive and in mass production. And I'm yeah. grateful to have an opportunity to work here. Oh. Um, well, I think we, um, you know, I, I will, I will just mention it because I feel like I have to. I know we're definitely going to be covering this in our next episode, but there is another binder jetting company out there that is currently seeking strategic alternatives. Um, so we shall see what happens there. Um, Rick Fulop, it has been such a pleasure to talk to you and um, completely illuminating. Uh, once again, you know, much respect to you through this process um, of, you know, the certainly the public facing part of this process this year. Um, it, it can't have been easy. Uh, the, um, the founder life is not for everyone, but what is clear is that it is for Rick Fulop. Um, we look forward to seeing the day when Desktop Metal becomes that $10 billion plus uh, additive 2.0 company um, that you first pitched it as back uh, when you were um, just about to list. So uh, thank you so much for joining us thank today you. and uh, great chat. Thank you, Alex. And, and my, my apologies, I was a little long-winded on some other questions, but uh, excited. It to your passion, Rick. Thank you. All right, my friends. See you Thank at you. Uh, Form Next. Absolutely. All right. Cheers. I'll talk to you soon. Thank you. Thank you for having me. You've been listening to Printing Money, the insider's perspective on finance and investment in the 3D printing industry. For more information about what you just listened to or for past episodes, visit www.3dprint.com.